Just in time for Halloween, uh, we have a horror story this morning. Uh, we have a Bible story that is intended to terrify. It is a story in which some characters will come upon someone whose power and ability and just strangeness will cause them to just cripple themselves in terror about what is happening. And this is because we're doing a story today that is a exorcism story. We've been going through the miracles of Jesus. And so today we're going to do a story that is about a demon being cast out of someone. And here's the problem whenever we tell a story about demon possession is that you immediately start filling your brains with this kind of stuff on the screen, right? This has become a trope in the media. We have demon possession movies. It's a whole thing. And we kind of all know the tropes of them, even if we've never watched any of them, right? We know there's usually some kind of stuff about like heads spinning around and things like that. And we, uh, and we're just kind of seeps into our, our DNA what demon possession looks like. And the danger for us is that we have far more like Roman Polanski and Stephen King and Dante in our minds than we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When we think about the idea of demons and demon possession, we immediately go to movies, we go to Hollywood, our brain is filled with these tropes, and we have a really hard time reading the text for what it is. And so what I would ask you this morning as we get ready to read this story is that instead of having your minds sort of filled with all of these Hollywood tropes of what demon possession is like, that we would actually, for once, just listen to the text. Let's see what the Bible tells us about what demon possession looks like and how it works. And if we do, I think we'll get a very fascinating story. And we will still see a figure that is terrifying. But I think that figure is a lot different than what you're thinking. I'm going to start in Mark 5, verse 1. <clears throat> they, being Jesus and his disciples, went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained, hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. This is the picture that we have of this famous character called the Gerizim Demoniac. And we see uh, a lot of symptoms of what's going on in his life. Uh, you could, again, we start to kind of fill in the Hollywood thing. We see like tombstones, like we have tombstones, right? Like headstones and lightning and thunder and someone grunting, you know, uh, walking their way between the stones. It's probably not like that. Ancient tombs were more kind of like caves that you would roll a stone in front of. You would uh, put in recently deceased bodies into the caves. And for a year or so, you would let those bodies de uh, decompose. And then you would come in with this big stone box and you would take all the bones and you'd gather them into that box. And that box would then kind of go into a cubby. And that was your cubby for the rest of eternity, right? Your bones would get slotted in next to your family members. So there were really fancy shoe boxes full of people's bones for the whole family together. 
And these are the kind of tombs he's probably hanging out in. It's a, a, a cavernous area, and he's probably squatting in these. He's finding one without a corpse and laying down at night where the corpses would decompose and using that like a bed. We do know that he is antisocial. He has probably got no money at this point. He's dealing with poverty. He's not integrated into society anymore. There's some kind of self-harm that is part of whatever this man is, is struggling with, where he's cutting himself and hurting himself. We see that what he's dealing with is, is extreme and very difficult. That this is someone separated from society. He's probably violent. The text is very clear that they were trying to bind him somehow. I assume they were doing that because he had become a danger to anyone who came around him. And we just see a very, very sick man. But this is not yet the terrifying figure of our story. That comes in just a minute. When this man who was demon-possessed saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High, Son of God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What's your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. This is really significant. There is a terrifying character in this story, and the terrifying character is Jesus of Nazareth. Do not get this mistaken. This is where we get things so backwards. In this story, this demon-possessed man, the one that the text has built up, he's so strong that he can't be bound. He's got bleeding sores, and he's groaning, and he's living among the tombs. This monster that we have built up in our minds. He sees Jesus Christ, he falls to the floor like a child and begs, don't send me away, please, 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 please. There is a terrifying figure in the story, there is a horrifying figure, and it is Jesus Christ. Because when demons see Jesus, they are terrified of what he will do to them. It's a fascinating way to spin it, and it's not the way that we often think about it. Again, your Hollywood brain is kicking in. But in this story, it is Jesus who is the terrifying one. It is Jesus who is the one who holds all of the power and all of the ability. And the text wants you to feel that. You can tell by the way Mark wrote it. He builds up this demoniac. And then the second him and Jesus come together, boom, that guy becomes nothing. He starts groveling on the floor because of how scared he is of Jesus. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and countryside, and the people who went to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And when the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. 
Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began uh, to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. It was interesting to see that the story continues. These spirits are sent into the pigs. Why does Jesus do that? Apparently, these spirits really like to torture whoever they're into. And so Jesus is saying, leave people alone. Go ahead to the animals. Also, you have to remember that pigs are impure or unclean to a Jewish mind. And so sending an impure spirit to live in an unclean animal is sort of a, uh, it's a way that Jesus is merciful to the demon, which by itself is a fascinating idea, right? But also, the pigs can't really handle it. So immediately these pigs kind of do the kamikaze thing off into the water. And you just see that these spirits are just destructive. They're there to destroy and to ruin and to kill whatever it is they inhabit. The idea of Jesus being terrified, though, continues. Because immediately these herders go into the town, they bring the town back, and it says very explicitly the town was afraid that Jesus was there. Sort of in the same way that uh, if there's a threatening person with a gun, and then a good guy with a bazooka shows up, there's still a bazooka in the room, right? <laughs> like, you're still not feeling great about that context. And so it's just the pure power of Jesus that makes him go, we do not need spiritual nuclear weapons in our neighborhood. Clearly, you are powerful beyond belief. Please just get out of here. We're not comfortable with the kind of spiritual power that you are packing. Just don't be in this zone. You know, don't, don't be around us. Uh, it's a very interesting story, I, I think, for a lot of reasons. Um, some of us want to, you know, kind of break down, what, is, what does this demon possession even mean? Do we actually have demons inhabiting people? Um, and this is a, a frustrating thing and a weird thing. I want to take away um, just a uh, couple of, you know, when, when it comes to that, I do want to just take a minute to say, we don't totally know how demon possession works. Some of you are probably thinking, well, that looks, that looks a lot like mental illness, right? Somebody who is harming and somebody who has sort of maybe some sort of identity issues, uh, disassociative things going on. And I'm very sympathetic to it. It does sound a lot like those things. Um, I would just suggest for you today, as you process the story, uh, let's not overly simplify things as one thing or another. When we say, well, did people really get demon-possessed? I, I think yes. And you go, well, how do you know it's not you know, a psychological disorder? Well, how do we know it's not both? Uh, this idea that our bodies are spiritual and physical and emotional and psychological, and those things are all separated out and they don't have effect on each other, we don't think that about anything else. right? When somebody is having severe depression issues, None of us go, well, that's a purely psychological issue. There's nothing physical happening with you. Well, no, of course there's physical things. We know that brain chemistry and all that kind of stuff affects it. And also that simple things like your diet and how you exercise can deeply affect uh, your emotions, the you know, serotonin levels and stuff like that that's going off in your brain. I'm not sure if it's technically serotonin. I'm not a doctor, okay, but along those lines. And so in the same way when we go, well, what's going on with this man? A lot of times the modern mind will go, well, is he demon-possessed or, um, or is he mentally ill? And I think we can say maybe a little bit of both. 
I remember years ago we did a sermon on demon possession. Some of you may have been in here. I remember Emily Auger telling about someone that was in uh, her practice who had had lots of personal issues. And um, they just could not figure out how to get it right. They were trying to help with, uh, it was an emotional and physical thing, and whoever this person was was having a lot of problems, and they could not figure out how to help this person feel better. They had some severe depression and some other things, I think. And she goes, one day he came in and he was all better. And I said, what happened? Like, we've been working on this a long time. What happened? And he was like, you know, for the first time in years, I went to church and they prayed over me Sunday morning. And I've just been better since. And she was like, well, all right, my medical diagnosis needs to at least move consideration to the idea that we're affected by spiritual things as well as physical things. And so it's very interesting how those things can interact with one another. And so I know some of you in your rational minds are looking at the story and going, ooh, what is this? And I think it's a really complex thing. But I think there's a lot of lessons that we should learn. As we come to this story, I think there's kind of three lessons that came out of my mind of things that we need to process. Um, one of those process, one of those things that some of you are hearing this morning is, yes, evil is real. It is very simple to take something like this and go, oh, just a medical thing, let's just toss some drugs at it and it'll get fixed. There's just no way that we live in a world as messed up as the one we are in and there are not some sort of personal entities that are trying to make it worse. Scripture is very clear about this. The worldview of Scripture, and I know it's a jump for some of us, is very clear that there are evil spiritual forces in the world, and they are trying to actively mess it up. And I want you to see the severity of what these evil forces want to do. This man's life was destroyed. He was separated from community. He had no resources to take care of himself. He was literally harming his own body. These spirits wanted nothing more to do than to just destroy and to pillage and mess up anything they could be in. They made a bunch of pigs suicidal, for goodness sakes. Like, these are nasty, nasty things. And some of you may need to hear the message this morning that, yeah, the world is got evil stuff in it. There are bad things in the world. And we should not uh, take that lightly. We should not take that for granted. Okay? Some of you need a little bit, a different message. A little bit the opposite message. Which is, yes, there are evil things in the world. But there is a limit to their power. The story I always remember when I think about demon possession. And it's a story... um, uh, from my college days, I had a professor, John Fortner, great, great Old Testament professor, had a lot of, he was a little crazy in his own right, but uh, one day a student came to him really worried about demons, really worried about demon possession, and they said, what can you tell me about demons? And I remember what John Fortner said, he looked at the student, he goes, I know one thing about Satan, and that is he is not God. And what he meant is, he is far less powerful. Right? Like, we don't want to be ignorant of the evil things in the world. But on the flip side, sometimes as Christians, we get it twisted. And we're like, oh, we're in a life and death struggle against evil. And we don't know who's going to win. Baloney. You should not live terrified of demons. It may be that in the movies, the priest shows up 
and there's a back and forth and you don't know who's going to win. But in scripture, when Jesus shows up, nobody's confused about who is going to win. Right? There's nobody who has to go, oh, I just hope that demons don't take over my house and ruin things. Uh, no, it's not a problem. It's not a concern. Uh, another couple places to look at this, just to help us understand Scripture. Matthew 12 is a passage where the Pharisees and the scribes are saying, Jesus is casting out demons with the devil's power. And it's like, well, no, 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 they're not. Because uh, Jesus is this. He, 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 he uses a verse that we all know from Abraham Lincoln, actually. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Jesus goes, I can't cast out demons by the power of Satan, because that doesn't make any sense. And then he uses this phrase. How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder the house. He's saying, you want to know what the Holy Spirit's like? The Holy Spirit's like a bully who kicks down Satan's door, ties him up, puts duct tape over his mouth, kicks him out, and then takes his stuff. That is how much stronger the Holy Spirit is than Satan. Later on, he talks about um, what happens if, after someone is healed of a demon possession, if they don't fill their life with the Spirit. When an impure spirit goes out of a person, it goes through arid places, seeking rest, and doesn't find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. So this is um, significant, and this is important. Uh, I'm going to talk about something I think is implicit here. Jesus goes, if you have an impure spirit leave, and then you don't fill the house with anything else, seven more are going to come back and things are going to be worse. But what's the implicit suggestion? If the spirit had left and you'd filled it with the Holy Spirit, it wouldn't have came back. Right? This is what happens when the Holy Spirit doesn't fill your life. But when the Holy Spirit does fill your life, that impure spirit's going to come back and go, oh, house is occupied. I'm not messing with this. Right? And so this is, uh, I think, another way that we hear that the, you know, the demons are less powerful than the Holy Spirit. Another interesting story. Acts 16. This is Paul walking around the city of Philippi. Once when they were going to the place of, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money by her owners, uh, for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are the servants of the Most High, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out of her. And at that moment the Spirit left her. This story is weird, okay? For one reason, the impure spirit is preaching the gospel, which is not what we'd expect an impure spirit to be doing, right? I mean, this, in the exorcist, the little kid's not going like, Jesus is Lord, Jesus, right? You know, like, this is not what you expect. But furthermore, Paul lets this go on for days. He isn't concerned enough to heal her immediately. And then in the end, he doesn't go, oh, I'm so scared of the spirit, we've got to get rid of it, right? No. Paul goes, this is annoying. Good gracious, shut up. Leave us alone. You are so just cramping my style. The early church was such with spiritual power that an impure spirit was not a danger to be fought against as much as an annoyance to be told, go away, shoo, leave me alone. 
When it comes to the Holy Spirit and to evil spirits, there is no question who is the big dog. Do not live in terror of evil spirits. Because they have no power compared to the Holy Spirit who lives in you when you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ. They are afraid of you more than you are afraid of them. And that is what scripture teaches about these sort of demonic forces. There's one more. I want to take these things together, wrap these two points up. C.S. Lewis has this book called The Screwtape Letters. And the Screwtape Letters are uh, a fictional account of two demons trying to figure out how to mess up people's lives. Right? And Lewis told this story to talk about uh, how demonic forces might work. And he says this, and it's really interesting. These, two, these first two points, some of us need to hear that evil is real. And the second point, that some of us need to hear that it's real, but you don't have to be that afraid of it. Lewis makes that really clear in this. The two demons are discussing this with one another. They go, when the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all pleasing results of direct terrorism. And we make no magicians. In other words, once the world is convinced there's no such thing as demons... We can't show up and, like, put on a big show and make them scared like, you know, maybe it would happen in an animistic culture. And so we kind of lose that. But on the flip side, on the other hand, when they believe in our existence, we can't make them materialists and skeptics. In other words, if if they live in a world where nobody believes in demons, then the way we get to them is we just convince them there's nothing evil in the world, we're not messing with them. And they live on like material, materialists and skeptics, thinking the world is uh, void of any spiritual forces, and then we can do what we want and they don't see us. And these two dangers are present how we hear this text. You need to understand there are things that will try to mess with your life, and you need to understand that they need not terrify you. They are terrified of Jesus. And if you get either of those out of place, then things can be messed up. <coughs> But I've got a third point. It might sound like a weird one. The other thing that I felt reading this story is that it's really possible um, some of us aren't terrified enough of Jesus. And then I feel weird. Right? This is not usually something we sing in songs like Jesus the Terrifying. That is something we don't usually put into a sermon. But I want to think for a minute. This impure spirit knows that faced with Jesus, he's got to be careful. And some of us can be dumber than demons. I think Jesus is really open and welcoming to people who come to him repentant. But when Jesus faces people that are just openly rebellious against what God wants in their life, the openly rebellious forces start shaking in their boots. They go, "Uh uh-oh. Jesus is going to mess with me. And there are some of us that have convinced ourselves that we can live our lives any way we want, and Jesus just isn't going to say anything about it. The demons are smart enough to know, if I live any way I want, Jesus is going to have some words with me. And he's going to have some strong words with me. Scripture puts it this way. It talks about God as a consuming and purifying fire. And that if you've got junk in your life that should not be in your life, that God will heat you up until the dross comes to the top and he can scrape the gook out, right? If you've ever worked with like lead or metal like that, 
you heat it up and all the impurities come up and you can scrape them off the top. Scripture talks about God working that way in our lives. When the disciples are first called, what do they say? They say, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Get away from me. You shouldn't be close to me. This is the way that someone who knows they live in rebellion to God responds when faced with the power of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we live in rebellion, we live with bad things that we shouldn't have in our lives, and then we think, oh, whatever, Jesus will forgive me, it's not a big deal. And I think sometimes when we're in our more obstinate moments, again, not when we're seeking Jesus humbly, but when we're defiantly sinning, where Jesus, where we should be more terrified, we should be at his feet, going, have mercy on me. I know how bad I've been. I know how destructive I'm living. I'm knowing the things that I'm putting up with that I shouldn't put up with. I know the things I'm doing that I shouldn't do. And we should realize that Jesus will fix those things in us, whether we like them or not. Some of us have had that experience of holding on to something sinful that we just thought was so special, it was our precious and have had the experience of Jesus coming in and taking our hands and prying them open and ripping it out and going, no, no more of that. And it should make you a little bit afraid. Because when you come to him open-handed, he is so gentle. But when you start kind of holding on to the sin and turning away, sometimes he can be a little more spiritually coercive and get rid of the stuff in your life. And if you've been through a moment of crisis, a moment of trial, a moment where Jesus has said, no, no more of that sinful behavior, we're going to clean this up, then like the demon, you are terrified and you tremble for him and go, please have mercy on me for what I've done. Somehow we've read stories of demon possession, so we're so scared of stuff that goes bump in the night, but we have no even awe or reverence for the character who everyone's actually afraid of in the story. And that's not the most welcoming, like, come to Jesus thing, right? That, I did preach this sermon last week for a very good reason, right? But sometimes, particularly those of us who are Christians, we've got to hear this. That when you are in the face of the holy spiritual power of Jesus Christ, there's a time where you go, forgive me for all of my impurity, all my uncleanness, all the things that I've taken on I shouldn't. Because if you're not... He's still going to win. It is still the German shepherd and the chihuahua. Whether it's you or it's the unclean spirit who's doing the stuff that are against his kingdom. Because eventually every knee is going to bow. Um, Jesus doesn't want to do it that way. I think Jesus likes it far more when people come to him and they go, oh, please forgive me. Or, you know, like the woman last week that grabbed the garment. I think Jesus likes those things. Daughter, your faith has healed you. I think those moments are way more Jesus' speed. But it is not beyond him to confront someone who is doing something they shouldn't do. It's my prayer today that as we go through this story, as we talk about spiritual forces and demons, all this kind of stuff, that we just remember these three lessons. Evil is real. It's not as powerful as God. And that means that we should be real mindful of how God feels about how we're acting. Because otherwise, we put ourselves on the wrong side of this confrontation. And we do not want to be there for practical or moral reasons. Um, we're going to do a song now. It'll probably feel like an abrupt uh, change of tone because there's not a lot of great worship songs that are like the terrifying power of Jesus and demonic possession. Like it was just, we don't have many of those songs in the repertoire. 
But this is a time for reflection. Uh, if you have questions, I assume this week we might have some questions. I saw people race for the question card, so it makes me nervous. Um, fill those out, and I'll collect those up here in just a minute. All right. All right. All right. Good. Good questions today. Uh, let me begin with the idea that uh, I am not a demonologist. I am uh, so I am giving you the best I got, like I do every week. But you know. <laughs> There's just that. So this is a great question here. Why do demons pick the people they pick to possess? Uh, here's the best I understand. I think it's really helpful when Jesus, again, talks about the, the spirits leave, and then they go around looking for somewhere, and then they come back, and they see the house is empty, and they go, oh, okay, we'll fill this one up. I think that is very illustrative of demons' MO, which is they are cowards. They look for the easiest pickings. Right? I think the demon possession is more, you know, we talked today about this man had this confluence of things. Like, he was homeless and he was poor and he also had probably some kind of mental health issues and he had the demon possession issues. I think some of that's because demons look around. If somebody has got the best doctors in the world and the best psychiatrists and the best family support in the world, they're not going to pick on that person. That's too hard. Right? And so they pick for people who have the hardest circumstances in life. Or have the emptiest hearts, or the hearts that are most devoid of the love of God. Uh, I think that is some of the way they pick. What they do is they just pick the easiest pickings, the e- the people that are most simple to pick off. And I think we see that in that story. They're looking in the windows to go, "Hey, is this a soul that is not occupied by anything else?" Oh, okay, it is. I'll take this one then. Um, and I think that's illustrative of kind of how they act. Everything we talked about uh, today uh, sort of hinges on the Holy Spirit living in you. And how does that happen? How do we know we have the Holy Spirit living in you? This is the beautiful thing about Scripture. If you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you've given yourself to him, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Okay? Um, This is, Paul uses this phrase very simply. For all of us who have been baptized into our Lord Jesus, know that his Holy Spirit lives in us. And that's not an exact quote, but it's, it's about there. This is, why, uh, this is why we think baptism is such a beautiful thing. Because when you have been baptized and you've said, I give my life to you, Jesus, and you've entered that relationship, um, Paul says, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and the reception of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to be a strickler that says the Holy Spirit can't be there if you haven't been baptized. But there is this concept in the New Testament that baptized believers have a guarantee and a seal in their baptism that the Holy Spirit has filled their hearts. And you don't have to live wondering about that. There are some forms of Christianity that like kind of make you feel nervous, like, oh, is the Holy Spirit still here or not? Is he really manifesting the way he's supposed to or not? And I'm just my opinion, I reject that fully. If you've given your life to Jesus and your relationship with him, his Holy Spirit lives in you because he has promised that to his children. And so that can help you not be so afraid of the demonic forces in this world. Uh, So what happens to the pigs, uh, to the demons, when the pigs drown? That's a really good question. The one option, right, is the demons will just go off and try to find a new host. Um, I I think, yeah, go into the fish, that's good. I like that, Joey. I just... All of a sudden, there's demon-possessed fish. There's just piranhas jumping out of the same valley. Um, I do think there is an implicit thing here that Jesus could destroy these demons if he wanted to. They are not immortal beings. I think part of the reason that the legion of demons goes, 
Please have mercy on us. Send us to those pigs as they're waiting to get evaporated by Jesus. And I don't think demonic forces are eternal forces. And so I think one day, literally, God will destroy these things. And so um, I, I'm suspicious that at some point, God said, I gave you mercy for a season. Now you're done. Uh, now that brings up another question. Could demonic forces become repentant and come back to God? I don't know. That's beyond my paycheck. But it's certainly an interesting idea. All right. And then a last question, a little more generic. How do you continue to show love in such a loveless world? Uh, Jesus. That's the way he was, and that's the power that he has. And so while uh, Jesus' love is never predicated on the way other people treated Jesus, it's always predicated on God's love poured into Jesus. So in the same way, when we have God's love poured into us, it's a never-ending source of passion and uh, capability that is supernaturally provided so that we can continue to love people even if they don't love us back. Um, and I think that's how that happens.